The old world is dying. A new world is being born. This is the time of the And what better time to discuss uh, a space man, a science, a science fiction icon, also an icon of the vaguely accepting incest community. Uh, we're talking, of course, about sci-fi legend Robert Anson Heinlein. Uh, his star is not as high as it once was in the sci-fi firmament, but he's still a pretty huge deal. Uh, and I have on with me Quentin, uh, who just did that lovely dramatic uh, version of the Gramsci uh, epigram. Uh, but before we start in on all that, I just want to do uh, the customary self-crit. Uh, and it's going to be a brief one because I only I, there might have been various issues with the Celine episode, but it was a while ago, so I don't remember them. And that's my main self-crit, which is uh, I didn't do a podcast for a while because I had other stuff to do. And I didn't want to feel bound to a schedule on this particular thing. I have so many other things that I do on a regular schedule, like sending out newsletter every Friday. I'm also working on a lot of other projects and, of course, my actual day job. Uh, I'm, I am going to continue doing the podcast. I will probably not try to have two months or so gaps in the future, but I'm not also not going to promise regularity. Uh, it's just not going to happen for right now. So that's the end of self-crit. Uh, Quentin, uh, this is one of the rare episodes that somebody else came to me uh, suggesting an episode and talking about wanting to do it. Normally it's me bothering other people to try to get them to give their opinions. So why don't you introduce yourself and, and why you're interested in this topic of Robert Heinlein? Yeah, uh, so this is Quentin. Uh, I met Peter when we were still both living in Boston. Peter, you still live in Boston, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I do. Yeah, so we're Near. old buddies. I was um, Peter's bartender and sometimes sure. reading club friends. I started thinking about Heinlein again because of the uh, Ocean Gate submersible incident, because yes. the people involved just seemed like perfect Heinlein guys, uh, the innovators, the tinkerers mm. who are trying to develop a more efficient form of exploration and human progress and uh, general discovery against the bloated, onerous regulatory body. Right. And then uh, so you have here like the kind of perfect libertarian myth of uh, an Edison or a Wright brother through their own bootstraps, creating something in the in spite of a large corporate body or a government uh, regulatory body. And then, of course, it, the myth horrifically just implodes at the bottom of the ocean. And I hadn't yeah. thought about Highland really uh, in a long time before then. And I was just thinking about the way that you theorized the right, your general critical project that seemed like a, a perfect way to talk about this extremely weird dude. I, too, have had thoughts about Heinlein. I, I, like many sort of nerds, I was introduced to him as a teenager. I didn't kind of fall in love with him the way a few of my friends. Interestingly, my main friend, who was a big Heinlein fan, was actually a girl, uh, my, uh, a good friend of mine still. Who, who was a big Heinlein person. I think still has some affection for him. And, you know, I'm not uh, critical of that. But 
I, I never quite got into him in the way I got into other sci-fi writers. Uh, I will say, though, as like Quentin says, as I got more interest in the history of ideas and the histories of, I guess, uh, popular or vernacular expressions of political ideas, uh, how political visions are uh, expressed by people whose main job it isn't to express them, right? Heinlein was first and foremost a novelist, uh, and short story writer, an entertainer, uh, a, a guy interested in telling exciting stories about space. But he also clearly had a vision, not just of politics, though politics are an important part of his vision of humanity, but of, of what people are and what it all means, how it all ties together. He has a very expansive vision. As Quentin says, it's also very weird in many respects, counterintuitive to kind of mores of today, but not at all counterintuitive uh, to millions of readers, both in his at his height in the mid-20th century and today. He's still widely admired, though I think he is seen as more of an ideological figure today since his death, essentially, a figure of the libertarian right, even as... Most people would acknowledge that he had periods where that descriptor wouldn't quite fit. And in particular, we are talking about, as as Quentin put it, the Heinlein guy or the Heinlein hero. Heinlein had a very long and productive career. He wrote dozens of novels and short stories. It would be really impossible, even if we had both read them all, which we have not, to, to give uh, full scope in uh, certainly a podcast or even a many podcast episodes uh to what he to the work that he did uh but he throughout his work had a particular type of guy pretty similar to what quentin talks about in terms of being a uh, lone uh pioneer or inventor and both those things are heavily tied together in heinlein's mythos right the idea of the pioneer who goes out to new territory and invents new things, uh, ways to either more efficient processes to do things that we already do or entirely new possibilities, and does so in the face of some sort of opposition, usually the opposition of a collective, whether it's political, corporate, or, you know, sometimes spiritual uh, aliens or whatever else. He was a pioneer uh, in uh, innovating new ways to sleep with your mother. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's just, right, because it doesn't stop with the technical, right? Heinlein turns this into a sort of, uh, his idea of pioneering uh, development as into like a whole new way of relating to other, not whole new, but a uniquely generated, self-generated system of how, of what's appropriate uh, in terms of how you deal with others, of how of what human history will look like the self the his concept of the self uh a lot of which is deeply goofy along with being in some cases repellent like quentin says towards the end of his career uh and by the time he had become this icon of the science fiction community and really didn't have to sell his stories or really answer to anyone at that point he Always for a long time, he had been a writer interested in exploring sexuality, and towards the end, by the seventies, some pretty aberrant 
sexuality if we're you know here we're we are pulling out the king this is a kink shaming podcast folks and we are shaming robert heinlein for having an incest kink uh because it comes out especially clearly in what some would argue is his magnum opus his uh second to last i believe novel um, um there's, yeah there's that um lumber the beast i think there's one more before uh his final novel okay beyond the sunset arguably his weird yes. sort of dmt trip yes he died. yeah yeah so uh time enough for love which was published in 1973 arguably his definitive statement though you could make arguments for both some of his earlier uh more conventionally appreciated work such as Stranger in a Strange Land, or uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, or Parts of the Future History. You could also make the argument for his last statement, like Quentin said, The Number of the Beast, which I did not read, but Quentin did, uh, and uh, has some, uh, he makes it sound very interesting. We did both, in Quentin's case, reread Time Enough for Love. Uh, In my case, uh, read it for the first time. It was an interesting experience, to say the least. And we're going to get into all of that the Heinlein man, the apotheosis of the Heinlein man in a 2,000-year-old uh, horny space pioneer who finds ways to, not just to sleep with his own mother and his own daughters, but to make it, to to argue that it's not just appropriate, but like, it's where it's all going. It's where it's all going for the self-made man. Not only is he free from government and from other people's interferences business he's also free from all social restraint and from the idea even the concept of blame uh for or shame for those things all right so do you want uh how, how do you want to proceed here uh yeah. do you want to uh do a do a brief bio overview of of Heinlein for our listeners who are maybe not as uh not as aware of of this giant of the field. Sure, yeah, and then uh, it looked like you were you were setting up a good read into the Lazarus Long character, who is the mm-hmm. the protagonist of Time Enough for Love. But we can just do a basic um, and arguably an alter ego, uh, Heinlein's yeah. closest alter ego. That is definitely a, a fantastical self projection. Anyways, we'll do just a brief biographical sketch. Heinlein was born in 1907 in, I guess, what could be considered a rural part of Missouri, although his family moved to Kansas City when he was still relatively young and was educated uh, in an urban environment. His grandfather was a country doctor who became a kind of archetypal figure throughout much of his later fiction. It was kind of Heinlein's ideal of a self-made man who had a valuable trade skill that allowed him to live a life as uh, as he envisioned for himself on the frontier. His more immediate family developed a small uh, industrial agribusiness, which was soon stamped out by the larger corporate firms that were developing through the Gilded Age, which gave Highland kind of an early distrust for large corporate bodies, um, which he then directed just toward uh, government regulatory apparatuses in general. Uh, and then he received his appointment to the Naval Academy in the, I guess the early 20s. And then apparently through a political patronage, through a family friend who is essentially a crony in the Tom Pendergrass Kansas City political machine. Self-made is always a little, there's always a little bit of wiggle room there. Uh, he graduates from the Naval Academy in 1929 and uh, he's working on first generation aircraft carriers, which 
will play into a lot of his uh, science fiction novels, both in terms of the minutiae of detail and militarism. And uh, what Highland does, uh, similar to Asimov and those early sort of grandmasters of science fiction, where they developed kind of the first structural components of what large scale space operatic stories would look like. Uh, Highland took a lot from his naval experience to translate what sailing out on an ocean would be like to sailing between the stars and using tropes that we use to this day in science fiction, right? So when he was discharged in 1934 because he contracted tuberculosis and he moved to California to do graduate work in physics at UCLA, although I think he dropped out kind of early on. And this is an interesting part of Heinemann's life because he's actually kind of flirting with a sort of diet leftism. He's heavily involved in Upton Sinclair's End Poverty in California campaign, uh, and he actually campaigns for Sinclair's gubernatorial bid, which when I found that out, it was deeply surprising to me. Uh, for those who don't know much about him, Upton Sinclair, you might know him uh, if you were, I don't know if they still assign the jungle in schools, which was his 1906, I think, novel about how the stockyards in Chicago uh, exploited immigrant workers and also were super gross, uh, unhygienic, the stuff you ate, uh, you know, you'd have thumbs in your canned sausages, uh, which helped inspire, you know, various, mostly food safety stuff, less labor stuff, which is what yeah, Sinclair it, had in mind. He was a socialist. Yeah, it helped start the FDA, right? Or just general yes. food regulatory apparatuses. Yeah, yeah. Upton Sinclair was concerned with like how they're treating Polish people. But his readership yeah. was basically grossed out about how much rat shit was getting in their sausage. Yeah, rat shit and thumbs, human thumbs. But uh, and they uh, and then he he continued writing. He actually wrote the novel that the movie There Will Be Blood is based on. He also he he moved to California and became a borderline utopian socialist. Right, he wasn't quite a Marxist. I don't think he was probably Marx influenced, but he had a pretty good run. Uh, that epic campaign that Quentin mentioned, the end of poverty in California campaign that really scared a lot of the California oligarchs at the time. Yeah, this is during like the Steinbeck era of California, right? Basically yeah. people who are like, hey, these conditions kind of suck. I mean, I don't think he wasn't like Woody Guthrie actually in the Communist right. Party, but more, like yeah. an early archetypal California leftist. Is yes. Everyone should be having a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, that's that's not where California politics would wind up going long term. Uh, but uh, yeah, and he was he Heinlein was something of a fan of the early days of the New Deal, or at least the early Roosevelt. Sort not unlike Obama, there was a set that FDR kind of seemed like everything to everyone at various uh, early on. Uh, he was actually considered somewhere to the right of people like Al Smith at first. We first ran in 1932. People projected a lot of hopes and fears onto him. Unlike Obama, he, you know, got done. I think that's where Heinlein kind of came in. He wanted, in the 1930s, there was a sense of, not just of dread, but of paralysis, that nobody knew what to do about anything, uh, that, the, that the wheels were coming off the machine. And I think Heinlein, like a lot of people, uh, supported someone who, promise to take things forward and for a little while it did, did look like that was for what it's worth he was never a fan he did not seem to be a fan did he ever like have a Mussolini praising period Heinlein not that yeah. I'm aware of yeah I don't, I don't think he was 
think he ever had any kind of like Ezra Pound sash period. Right, right. He never, he, he, unlike a lot of, including people who would go on to be leftists, never like expressed admiration for Mussolini or Hitler. Again, a lot of the times in the 30s, that was on the same logic of, oh, at least they get stuff going, right? The proverbial trains running on time. Right. People um, really would figure hated how... bankers at the time. Right. He likes rich people. He doesn't like corporations. Yeah. yeah. Which... Rich people are cool. Yeah. With, or, or, cool. or can't, yeah, rich people who fuck and who like do their own tinkering. Not that he really meaningfully does either of these things, but the type of attraction helps explain Elon Musk and his appeal. Sure. Uh, I think, well, moving forward, he uh, yes, he campaigned for Sinclair's gubernatorial bid and actually tries his own run at State Assembly in 1938, which fails miserably because he's in an actually fairly conservative district. Uh, I think he becomes disillusioned with politics generally, but leftism specifically. Like, I wasn't able to find too much biographical about this period of his life, but well, what we know of his character, I'm sure he just found California leftists to be annoying generally, but he still stayed fairly liberal during this period between the 1940s through the mid 50s. Asimov described him as a flaming liberal, a Roosevelt Democrat who doesn't like bankers, doesn't like big businesses, but has a idea of what the frontier should look like and specifically what a man should do and how they should yeah. rationally generate their own life through the opportunity provided in America. Yeah. Uh, his first story is published in 1939. Uh, and then after that, he actually ends up re-enlisting in the Navy during World War II, working as a civil engineer. And there he meets the woman who will become his, eventually become his third wife, uh, Jimmy Gerstenfeld, who some, from what I've read, some biographers kind of credit her with actually formulating his ideas that ended up moving him to the right. And she clearly plays a strong role in how he wrote women in his later fiction as a very smart and strong, fiercely independent woman, but is also uh, ferociously attracted to Heinlein's various novelistic stand-ins. So basically represents Heinlein's perfect idea of what a woman should be. And later became kind of... You know, she outlived him by a bit and became kind of this dead mother to like his fandom and to the sci-fi community in general, right? This is back when sci-fi fandom was a much more insular community bound together by like the cons and the zines and the pulps more than by, you know, the internet, which didn't really exist. Though Jenny Heinlein, uh, Robert Heinlein was an early like message board guy. Uh, early message board adopter. He was a born poster, uh, for sure. Yeah, uh, and Ginny was uh, on, like, the Usenet forums dedicated to Heinlein uh, and was, a you know, like, this beloved, like, dead mother figure uh, for everybody. So that, that's kind of wholesome, but, you know, uh, like like Quentin says, there's, there's multiple sides to the Heinlein's idealized woman. Absolutely. All right, so I guess that covers the basic biographical stuff he becomes very uh basically able to support himself through his writing through the 50s he was writing in pulp magazines through the 40s and kind of breaks through into mainstream through the late 40s and then the early 50s through the 50s he's writing much more kind of utopian space exploration science fiction the decade ends with him writing probably one of the novels he's most known for starship troopers because of Verhoeven's uh movie adaptation of it which was actually I guess my first exposure to Highland without even yeah. realizing it. Uh, yeah. I was probably like nine years old when it came out. I thought it was just mm -hmm. Starcraft, but a movie. 
all the, yeah. the irony and the satire went completely over my head oh well. yeah yeah same uh and like I said, you know, I was a little bit older and I had a couple of friends who were Heinlein people and they did not like it because they were like, oh, it takes all the philosophy out. And, you know, all the philosophy on display is, well, I mean, we can get into that later, but I, I think Verhoeven improved uh, drastically. Yeah. Even if you're a Heinlein fan, I really don't. Yeah. Though there is like one, it's funny, I would occasionally refer to Starship Troopers back when I used to teach, just like I would make jokes about it or whatever you know, a room full of, you know, 20 somethings in the, uh, or, or teens in the late 20, mid late 2010s, none of them knew what Starship Troopers was, except for the ROTC students. So that's another part of Heinlein's fan base. He's still quite popular with, you know, uh, military people who like to read sci-fi, including Starship Troopers. So that basically covers the interesting parts of his biography. Uh, I guess after Starship Troopers, he wrote the first book of his that I read, which was Stranger in a Strange Land, when I was probably like 19 or something, and getting more into science fiction through Philip K. Dick and Neil Stevenson and kind of working my way back into Asimov, Stanislaw Lev, and then eventually Heinlein. But I read Stranger in a Strange Land because it was supposed to be this totemic countercultural novel, not unlike On the Road. Reading back to it now, maybe some of the the cultier stuff was actually ironic. One of the main characters, not the Martian, uh, Michael Valentine Smith, but uh, Dr. Jubal Harshaw is a kind of perfect mm. Highland character because he's a self-made man. He is both a medical doctor and a doctor of laws. And uh, mm. he hates lawyers, but uses his own lawyer skills to keep the cops away from his house of rationality and sexy ladies where he writes his hack fiction well it's stranger in a strange land do you want to talk about that a little bit first before we go into the lazarus long character or yeah so stranger in a strange land i don't think it's connected to the lazarus long stories i don't think it's part of the future history no it sort of uh, stands on is, its own right yeah heinlein has this overarching future history series that he began writing early on in his career in that uh, Time Enough for Love is kind of the apotheosis of. Uh, Stranger in a Strange Land is not part of this, which probably helps explain some of its crossover appeal. Uh, like Quentin says, it's the story of this man who was born on Mars. I don't quite remember how he winds up there because he's not a Martian. He's a human man, but he's culturally Martian. Yeah, I think narratively, it doesn't really matter how it ends up. No, Highland likes to use a lot of uh, sort of narrative leaps in order to get where he wants. Yeah. He wasn't entirely interested in storytelling. No, no. Uh, or like self-consistent, yeah. like plot, like like tight plotting. That's for good and for ill. But uh, yeah, so he winds up on Earth and he is just this kind of like naive, naive, sexual, psychic Jesus right? Like, uh, he's pure of heart. He's pure of intent. He's this kind of, like, maybe like this Rousseauvian figure, like, totally. uh, right, like, like, how Rousseau imagined primitive man just running through the wilderness naked and free. Uh, right, before civilization destroyed us with its taboos. Yes, yes. Uh, and he attracts like a cult around him, of people who come to worship him, including many sexy ladies, uh, he tries to teach them the ways of the Martians, 
and their you know freedom uh, freedom from taboos freedom from restrictions uh pure open communication like heart to heart and body to body and mind to mind philosophically kind of spinozistic or buberian uh immediate connection with the other uh, which yes. is what makes it very uh, influential to the, in the 60s counterculture. Yes. That's actually, we should probably, that's where the popular term grok comes from in yes. the English lexicon. To grok something is to not know it, but to completely embody either a concept or another person. Yes. So you know, you learn, know something like the way you know your primary language rather than to understand something right. intellectually. And, and so uh, uh, Valentine Smith, uh, becomes like this this Jesus figure complete. Actually, this wound up being quite influential on Charles Manson's family. Manson either read it or re or had heard enough accounts of it that he used some of the rituals described. He talked about grokking uh, because there was a heavy sexual overtone. This was kind of uh, I mean overtone. There's heavy sexual content that because women and, and uh, I think maybe kind of men. Uh, uh, I'll want him. I'll want Michael Val, and, and they 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 learn to like open up sexually due to like the turning on of the grokking mind, essentially that Michael Valentine Smith provides. Now, to be fair to Heinlein, there was no implication that you should you know go out into uh, people's houses and, and cut them up with knives. Uh, if anything, the only real violence is committed against Michael Valentine Smith. Because in this, you know, cruel world of people who don't grok and who subscribe to various uh, social rules and norms and power games, he has to, and, and the people ultimately being sheep who go along with it, most of them, uh, he gets sacrificed like this Jesus figure. In part also because if he didn't do that, he would just be routinized into just another, at least that's how I read it, another religious lawgiver, which is not the point. Right, in religion, he had to be martyred in order to be powerful, in order for his ideas to be properly grokked. Right? Yes. He was too pure to actually live on Earth. He had to be uh, yeah. discorporated back to Mars. It was definitely influential on the counterculture just because uh, Heinlein would understand his uh, what we might consider gross stuff and at some points to be just simply interrogating social mores or social conventions. Right to determine that they're actually arbitrarily uh, conceived by whatever social conventions that we were uh, born into, rather than being rationally given. Yeah, and it is interesting the parts that he criticizes of society and the parts that doesn't. He never criticizes, like, private property, for instance. Uh, he doesn't criticize, you know, the basic kind of structure of of capitalism, which is of whoever owns the capital gets to decide how to dispose of it. Uh, he is also uh, a free labor guy. He free, he routinely makes a big deal out of opposing slavery in various uh, situations that he's in, though uh, he is also kind of of the opinion that people wind up choosing slavery for themselves. And many of his stories that involve people escaping from slavery or abolishing slavery in a given sci-fi scenario, a lot of the people wind up uh, accepting it, accepting their slavery, because that's their law. They're that kind of people. Yeah, he does go through a period of, I think, general uh, hope for for mankind, for, for humanity. Mm. Uh, through the 40s and the 50s with his early science fiction, he wrote this essay which was i think part of like a cbs radio series called our uh, noble 
essential decency, which basically talks about how everyone is generally good and that headlines about crime uh, only are just used to sell newspapers. But really, if he was to walk down his street, everyone is really cool and chill. And so we should not worry too much about the evil in humanity because we're basically all good people. That side of him was definitely eked out by the social upheaval of the 60s, which yes. Stranger in a Strange Land actually influenced. Yeah, which I, I don't know if he ever quite, like, I don't know if he knew that the man, I don't know if he ever read, like, Bugliosi on Helter Skelter, because that's where it comes in. I, I have to give a shout out to my other podcast co-host, Isaac, on the People's History of Violence, who's not a fan of Bugliosi, to say the least. But it does seem pretty well recorded that the the bit about Manston and Stranger in a Strange Land. I, I think like the moon landing in 69 was kind of his last real moment of optimism, probably, mm -hmm. because as he gets older, there were always the wise characters like his uncle, the wise old guy who, you know, he's kind of grumpy, but he's got a heart of gold and he likes children. And he, he tells them the stuff that their parents won't tell them about how the world really works. So that was always present. And early on, the Heinlein, the the central character was a was whoever imbibed that advice and acted on it. But towards the end, it starts that becomes the main character, right? Uh, as Heinlein, I think, started to see himself as the coup. Oh, sorry, no, uh, you I said that might actually be a good place to talk about the Lazarus Long character and then time enough for love. Yes. Going from how they're curmudgeonly old man who actually holds the 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 grim and brutal truths of the world began as a sort of uh, paternal or grandfather figure and then transitioned into being the actual protagonist yeah. in, his, in his later novels. Right, because the, the hopeful moment of the moon landing does not last long. No. And Heinlein moves further. Uh, he had already moved somewhat to the right. If you're going to, you know, he was involved with groups like the John Birch Society. I don't think he was ever a full member, but he was involved with some pretty far-right groups in California. Yeah. He did campaign uh, for Goldwater in 64, I think. He, yeah, he campaigned for Goldwater. Fixation on on winning the Cold War, on building more missiles and bombs. And a uh, as the regulatory state came to be more associated with things like civil rights, Heinlein and race is a, is a weird topic in that there's very little evidence that he was personally prejudiced. That, he, that was probably part of why Asimov would have called him a flaming liberal, was that uh, he was never on board with things like slavery or racial or, or like personally interested in racial segregation. He did have some very dehumanizing portraits of people of other of particularly Asians who he routinely depicted as collectivist. Definitely uh, of the era. Yeah, definitely of the era. And of course, he eventually goes to the Goldwater right. And, you know, Goldwater wasn't that dissimilar in that he wasn't known for being particularly personally prejudiced, but he valued the ability of business owners uh, to be able to call the police to drag black people out of their establishments for no other reason than they're black more than he did black people's humanity. Right. I think uh, there is enough evidence both in his early novels and then i think whatever biographical information we can glean that he was he actually probably loathed racism at the individual level but as mm. soon as you know black people as a community started actually demanding rights and some yes. historical retribution for you know slavery uh highland right. that's the social upheaval of the 60s is what really started to move him into the right because he 
thought that you should just individually bootstrap your way into freedom. Right. It was, I think, bizarre to him that people would, with with as much like kind of energy and like willingness to, you know, fight for something, would put that into like political agitation and like organizing a community rather than, I don't know. Start a uh, hardware store. <laughs> start a hardware store. Find a, find a frontier and uh, settle on it and decide you're the boss now. Right, he probably you would know. have been more on board with like Marcus Garvey rather than Martin Luther yeah, King. Yeah, quite. Po- yeah, I think if you know, and and he was alive at the same time as Garvey, but I think that I don't think there, I don't know if there's any record of him knowing about. But Garvey had a kind of people don't appreciate this that much, but kind of a colonization effort by Black oh, yeah. Americans to go to Africa and fix what's wrong over there. Uh, it wasn't all unity uh, for him. But yeah, I think he would have been into that. I think he would have loved, you know, the Black Star Line and all that stuff. I wonder if there's any record of him paying attention to it at all when he was young. I haven't seen anything about that, but it definitely speaks to his desire for a frontier. Yeah. So yeah, so so we might as well, let, let's go into Time Enough La- for Love. Do you want to give us a... Old, yeah, that old to... goat Lazarus. Yeah, we should give us a rundown with... So the Lazarus Long character starts in his serialized novel, which I think from, was from 1941, called Methuselah's Children. It's where we get the first introduction to the cult, the Howard families, which is mm-hmm. becomes a, a totem throughout the rest of his work. Uh, the Howard families basically shows a, his first interest in what could reasonably be called eugenics. The oh, Howard yeah. families are a foundation based on breeding for longevity, to find people who, through ancestry, have lived a long time and basically pay them to breed with other people who have lived for a long time, who are, whose family members have lived for a long time. Lazarus Long is born uh, Woodrow Wilson Smith in the same year that Highland was born, 1907. And the Earth goes through a kind of Malthusian crisis of overpopulation and humanity. There's several dictatorships that go over, and then through what appears to be a benevolent kind of world government, the Howard families who are who keep themselves secret from the rest of the population decide to reveal themselves, which causes the rest of the population of the earth to become jealous because they think that they have some scientific secret that keeps them uh, that gives them long life rather than being uh, bred for it like sheep. So eventually, the Lazarus Long character, who is 150 years old through just good breeding, apparently. Uh, makes a daring escape and gets uh, Howard families to basically hijack this starship. And then they go out into space and then they go into a couple of different planets. They meet this benevolent hive-like race on a planet. And one of the Howard family's members builds a star drive with their technologies. And then uh, they come back to Earth and that's the end of that story. But Lazarus Long becomes the central figure in Time Enough for Love. Time Enough for Love takes place uh, 2,000 years later. And the usual sci-fi trope in order to extend a narrative with the same characters, basically you just create something that reduces aging, kind of similar to what the Kim Stanley Robinson Martian novels. He's able to keep the same characters alive through through anti-aging scientific remedies. So Lazarus Long starts time enough for love, uh, wanting to die. He's something like 2,400 years old. He doesn't have anything left to do. So he decides to just uh, not rejuvenate himself anymore. 
and allow his body to just decay of its own accord. And then one of the, the families that are one of the planets that the Howard families have uh, created their own sort of right wing utopian uh, government on the planet called Secundus. The chairman of this planet finds Lazarus Long trying to kill himself and basically without his Lazarus's permission, brings him back onto the planet in order to rejuvenate him. And Lazarus says, why won't you let me die in peace? And then the chairman says, we need your vast wisdom in order to, to maintain our political environment. So I need to keep you alive. He has Lazarus stay alive, which basically sets up the structure of the novel, which is three different Western stories of Lazarus Long's different travels on planets in order to build new frontiers. Yeah, and it also keeps him interested, keeps him from killing himself, right? Because he, he negotiates that he always has access to like an instant suicide button. And he has some interesting things to say about how, you know, otherwise he'd be a prisoner if he didn't have that, which you know, I, I could see that point. But uh, he, to keep him interested, they just keep him plied with you know beautiful young women uh and so we hear a lot about there and of course they wind up smitten with him despite the fact he is just this like uh old coot of a of a guy i guess you know they're, they're silver foxes or something and immediately start plotting about how to like get impregnated by him so i, I think it's worth talking here a little bit about the quality of Heinlein's prose Uh, it's it's often epigram uh, i'll start with strengths it moves along quickly most of the time it's often epigrammatic right he comes up with these memorable little turns of phrase there's a reason his uh some of his words or turns of phrase wind up in memes or like the the early version of a meme you know uh the thing like like how the how the term grok got passed around but uh weaknesses I mean, we could talk about characterization, that he's always doing the same stock characters over and over again, or not paying a lot of attention to, you know, well-constructed plot. But what it really is, is his endless, uh, like, let's put it this way. He used, he wrote for the Pulps, and he also wrote for teenagers for a long time, right? He wrote these kind of what would now be called YA sci-fi stories. And there is just this, like, jaunty scoutmaster slash... Uh, snake oil salesman tone to most of his writing even when he's talking about terrible disasters usually brought on by some kind of collectivist uh or collectivist hysteria or or government hypocrisy it's all in this like well you know if they had just uh if they had just gotten the true coat on their on their new cadillac <laughs> then they wouldn't have had these uh issues with the uh the body paint um yeah, like, yeah, very jaunty, glib. Uh, yeah, they're you know, written full, like radio dramas. Written like I mean, radio dramas. Longer forcibly, novels. Yeah, forcibly cheerful. Uh, and then by the time you get to Time Enough for Love, uh, dripping with horniness. Uh, everybody is horny and uh, polymorphously horny and like kind of this this playboy era horniness where like you can't really get that explicit but it, to make up for it there's like this the, it's like keeping the lid on a pot where it's just this constant vibrating, over, this yes. boiling pot this constant boiling tension and like speculation 
worming into every aspect of life uh, and every like er, er, consideration of er, his range of erotic possibility, uh, which usually turns into stuff about pregnancy, stuff about uh, breeding, stuff He's about obsessed with fertility, with fertility, with lineage, which eventually, like we've been saying, goes back to uh, excusing incest. Yeah, so he's still like from the 60s up to Time Enough for Love, which is 1973. It's Time Enough for Love we decided to use as the kind of center of gravity for this discussion because it is kind of a capstone of both his political thinking and his what becomes his obsession with interrogating social conventions. So this, um, you could say Secondus is kind of a fascistic utopia right it's a he calls mm. it a benign tyranny all sexual mores have been eliminated even uh even homosexual mores except he doesn't really mm. like to write about them he'll just yeah. sort of suggest it like at the in yeah the they're, they're doing their thing <laughs> right because he sees he sees the kind of sex he's interested in as fundamental to human liberation and yes. human possibility whereas i think he would probably if you pressed him on it would say that homosexuality is fine you should be free to do it but it's a blind alley yeah and he's uh, not, not interested unlike, in writing about it yeah and it doesn't him on so it's a blind alley uh not unlike the way he depicts many cultures as the uh, you know many a, a lot of the planets that humans go to are based on various of earth's cultures as understood by somebody with heinlein's education right the routinely middle eastern kind of islamic planets chinese type planets native american ish planets uh, africa type planets on and on and it's never like oh these people should be exterminated but it's always like well they're you know they're fine but they're a blind alley right they're never going to go anywhere they're going to get caught in their cultural patterns which often resemble the patterns i don't like here on earth my version uh, you know my version of it and th it's just going to turn in to stagnation which was pretty common in sci-fi at the time it wasn't just him doing that and it should be uh mentioned that the planet where they actually got the technology for the drive that allows them to actually perform interstellar travel was gotten from a race called the little people which is essentially supposed to mm. be probably uh chinese communists yeah where they have yeah th their technology is really good but we don't want to actually join them because they're all a hive right. mind. They, you lose your individuality there. Yeah, yeah. There needs to be some. Uh, there, there needs to be some way to do the things that they do while maintaining individuality, while also like coming the long way around to a kind of communal like fuck pile mind. So maybe we can talk about how his political vision really takes shape. Hmm in this in time enough for love and what its actual what the end conditions are to it or what its terminus is because mm -hmm. they end up he, he starts lazarus long sorry starts a whole new family on this planet of they go to turn they go to yeah. tertius right right but he starts a family with the nurses who are nursing him or, or rejuvenating him back to health mm -hmm. with uh, the chairman of the planet and the chairman's daughter, and then with a super famous uh, sex worker, right, Tamara, mm -hmm. who is uh, she's described as the best artist 
of her work. Turns out that that woman is actually Lazarus Long's mother mm. who has been brought into the future. But anyway, yeah, through through like cloning, right? Or something? Yeah. It's not literal time travel? Not quite. Or no, I think they yeah. use time travel. I remember that when we were they? talking about this earlier, I realized that I had actually the first time I read it, I thought I read it all the way through, but I got to the mm-hmm. point uh Lazarus clones himself into two women yeah and then yeah before he goes back in time ends up having sex with both of his two daughters and that's when i actually put the book down i was like all right I yeah i think i've yeah, had yeah. enough this is <laughs> a combination this is a combination of us not taking good enough notes uh Heinlein being this novel just being way out there in terms of like uh again it's not just repellent sexuality which i've read plenty of works about it's repellent sexuality pitched at you the same way somebody would pitch like uh, Tupperware. Right. In, yeah. Or, or that same knives door to door. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's just like, hey, isn't, this is kind of neat. And, you know, you might think that you can't have, you can't store your your leftovers in a sealable plastic container. <laughs> but, buddy, I got news for you. You can. Uh, you might think that you can't uh, have sex with your own daughters. But if they're just cloned versions of you. And they're consenting. And for three easy installments of $9.99. Right, right, right. So so there's that. And also, this plot is genuinely hard to keep track of. Yeah, uh, the threads are are multifarious and tangled and don't really cohere together. Yeah. So, yeah, so I might have not been doing a very good job of actually trying to give a general synopsis. But oh, I, didn't, I think it's I pretty difficult. Done it. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't have done it even uh, any anywhere close to as well. So you're doing fine. Some of the most compelling parts of the book are actually the kind of the the three frontier stories where mm-hmm. he actually does what Pylon seems to have wanted to do the whole time, which is write westerns. Mm. So there are three different kind of genre westerns that provide the bulk of the book, or at least the first two, three, the first three quarters of it. Mm-hmm. But in each one, he ends up having some kind of sexual liaison with either an adopted daughter or someone who. He comes into care of, but when as once they come of age, mm-hmm. he ends up begrudgingly having a sexual liaison with them because mm-hmm. because he's just so attractive to these women that they can't stop themselves from wanting to be impregnated by him. Right. What if you're oppressing them, your your substitute daughters, by not having sex with them? them. Right. That's the then you're doing you're morally in the wrong. Yeah. As far as right. I would be concerned. Yeah, and and every time the the thing is, Heinlein's not completely foolish in that he get he knows what the end of the frontier story always is, uh, which is to get civilized. It gets ruined. It can't it can't last forever. At least not in until you conquer time and space and mm-hmm. and the human mind, right? Because inevitably he has to always move on because he can't. As far as he was concerned, as soon as you can like see your own neighbors. Right. That's when you got to start thinking about going to a whole new planet right? Uh, because eventually enough people will come. They will introduce, you know, quote unquote, civilization, uh, more rules, more people poking into your business, uh, government, corporations, all the stuff that hems in the truly free man. So he always has to get on his spaceship and start over again. Right. Those are the kind of contradictions of libertarianism, right? Or at least one component of them where you have to build your own civilization, build your own self-made world. But as soon as that world actually develops civilization, then you have to destroy it and move on so that you can actually do your own thing again. 
or or leave it to be self-destroyed. Now, it, it, he eventually winds up, because from the beginning, Ira, the, the planet dictator, uh, he says, listen, I know, I know enough about how all this works that this planet is, isn't going to be truly vital for long. And, and the concept of vitality in Heinlein is related to the frontier fantasy, right? As soon as you can no longer entertain a frontier fantasy, uh, the pl uh, a given planet or country or civilization is no longer vital. It's just acting out the inane dramas of life and, and birth and death. Uh, you know, the, the kind of cycle that Heinlein looks to escape. That's another part of all this is started by the fear of natural death by one but guy. In session, yeah. Heinlein, <laughs> afraid of death. Well, Heinlein and uh, in the story by by uh, Howard Long. Well, yes, exactly. Uh, or Howard, what's his family? Uh, the uh, the ha I, Howard families, yes. Yeah, Ira Howard. There's Ira a lot Long of Iras. Howard, yeah, yeah and Howards, and yeah. But, uh, right, he was afraid of natural death, therefore he started this whole thing. Okay. Uh, and that's, that's an unusual idea to me. But uh, he's saying, listen, we need you to lead us uh, to a new planet. We need to start over again. Why wouldn't you want to do that with us? And he says, well, I've done it a million times. As far as I could tell, the inducement is the promise of this particular sexual situation that he comes up with. Yeah, having a, an, a very close-knit immediate family that you can also uh, fuck the whole time. Yeah, is... and, and have it be completely moral and okay. Totally cool. So yeah, he clones himself into two daughters through some kind of time travel shenanigans manages to go back and basically not just sleep with his own mother but also basically conceive himself yeah right? it There's, becomes an ouroboros at the end of the novel right that is and, and there is a part of you know there's several kind of philosophical uh you know rants kind of not unlike i think heinlein and and ayn rand were mutual admirers uh for much of life and Heinlein was not above the Ayn Rand tactic of just plopping pages and pages of speeches into the middle of his novels uh and one such was I believe it was called like in defense of solipsism I think yeah uh this book that, is almost entirely dialogue yes yep that's another aspect of this but it is just him going on and on about how Lazarus Long about at the end of the day you should regard yourself as the only real person. And that is ultimately what he manages to do by not only is he only real to it, he, he also is self-created, right? Literally. Yeah, uh, it's not so much about the, the Freudian aspect of needing to, to fuck with your mom or to, to yeah. sleep with your mom, but so that you could actually be self-generated at the yes. biological core level, right? right? Like if we're going to take libertarianism at its ground, then biologically you have to find a way to create yourself. And when I was right. reading this the second time, and I think it was actually for the first time all the way through, because one of the major inducements to keep Lazarus Long alive was to do something new, something he hadn't done before was to go back in time. So they develop a time yeah. machine to bring him back to the early 20th century when he was born, which is also gives Heinlein a reason to actually talk about the world that he grew up in, which is what he's clearly mm -hmm. starting to fantasize about as he's getting later on in his life. Yeah. As he goes back in time, 
he gets to yeah meet his mother, sleep with his mother, create himself, and then he goes off to World War One, and he dies or he's shot in World War One. And then there's a pretty revealing passage at the end of the book. Let me see if I can flip to it here. So as he's dying, you know, on the Western Front in World War One. Uh, a voice starts speaking to him, presumably as, you know, the lights are starting to fade out and says, you still don't understand the gray voice droned on. There is no time. There is no space. What was, is, and shall ever shall be. You are you playing chess with yourself. And again, you have checkmated yourself. You are the referee. Morals are your agreement with yourself to abide by your own rules. To thine own self be true or you spoil the game. Lazarus, crazy. Then vary the rules and play a different game. You cannot exhaust her infinite variety. If you would just let me look at your face, Lazarus muttered pettishly, try a mirror. At the end of the book, what Lazarus is discovering is that he is actually the world. And if we take Highlander's word, I'm not sure if he's using irony here or if it's being unconsciously revealed that libertarianism taken seriously at its word leads entirely to solipsism and whether solipsism is something that we actually want for Heinlein or for Lazarus Long that solipsism is less lonely because he just generates other versions of himself out almost in this kind of pantheon of Greek gods right I started to think about this more in terms of Greek mythology at the end of the book rather than just a guy who wants to fuck his mom or fuck his daughters because I'm in the Greek pantheon, right? All the gods are kind of generated out of themselves and they all sort of sleep with each other while watching the world do things and try and poke and prod with it. Yeah, well, uh, in a considerably more sophisticated and, and thoughtful and well-written uh, sci-fi opus, uh, The Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe, which is experiencing something of a moment uh, right now, which is cool to see. Uh, a lot of people are talking about it. Um, uh, they call the word for God they have on this this long distant uh, future Earth is the increate, the one who is not created, right, but creates others. Uh, and now the Greek gods they were created by somebody that they had to overthrow. Mm -hmm. um, but the Heinlein version, it, it, it's like if the Greek gods, like you're saying, were increate were were just this this self-creation that created a world to entertain itself with and it, it it's also similar to some you know uh ideas from the tradition of western esotericism that we are all in the mind of god that the universe is god's mind thinking except that this is just a banal individual uh, individual version of it where like yeah the the and, and the only people who can really grok that are these people who have thrown away the concept of attachment to others whereas most western esotericists would say actually uh because whatever else they were they were usually sincerely religious people uh would say no you 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 get to that apotheosis by connection to others right through the exact opposite love. we're not in your mind we're in god's mind and you're not you could become part of God through, like you said, mutual love, mutual connection, really seeing the God in others. But for Heinlein, or for, and as a stand in Lazarus, that comes with a border mentality, right? There's us, and then there's 
the people who don't matter. There's a recognition yes. of others, but they're outside of the elite or the, the 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 Mount Olympus that we live on because we have bootstrapped our way up to the mountain of the gods. It's a similar kind of reification that libertarians have to do with capitalism because they have to say this is entirely natural. This is just the way the world works. The arrangement of goodies, to the extent there's anything wrong with it at all, it's only due to the government. It's only because uh, bad actors applied power in the wrong way in maldistributed resources. So nobody has to think about, well, so in this case, this, all, the, all the pieces of technology that would need to be used to make this happen, nobody says, well, okay, who built this? Who oh, designed no. it? Who's servicing it? Who's cleaning the toilets? Now, probably in this future, a lot of that, the answer would just be robots. But it, you can go back to Heinlein's earliest stories about, you know, lone genius inventors, often uh, early on, often adolescents, and they want, Heinlein wants there to be this lack of connection to the world, that anything they give to the world when they save somebody's lives or whatever is this pure free gift. But like, okay, where did the kid get his fucking electronics kit? Yeah, where did the, where where's the transistors kid? come from? Where are the capacitors right, coming from? What about the copper who wire? Who mined the metal? Who created the the fucking you know uh, mail deliver mail order house? He presumably would have had uh, sent sent it to his farm, uh, etc. Right? Nobody uh, libertarians, I think, are are kind of allergic thinking about that at at the outmost of libertarianism. Right? Obviously, there are libertarians who do occasionally at least entertain uh these ideas in order to kind of uh, sometimes to take them on board sometimes more to kind of hedge them out but Heinlein just kind of go for it and just says no that all those things are just uh, that's just stuff that happens behind the scenes that we don't have to think about yeah he Heinlein is able to do a kind of Husserlian bracketing out of industrial mm. production and its its necessity in order to actually build the things that his bootstrapping characters get to use to build right. their, their fun inventions and their frontier. Right. And he takes that attitude to the level of metaphysics, where you also don't have to think about uh, having had a mother and a father and various other people who took care of you uh, as as a when all you were was a being that could do nothing other than shit and scream, right? To me, that's one of the ultimate thing uh, arguments against any type of like treating yourself as an ultimate law. It's like okay, big shot. Well, not too long ago, in the grand scheme of things, you were literally helpless. Yeah, someone uh, had to love you unconditionally in order to yeah clean the shit off you and make sure that you got right. fed enough and make sure you got to bed. Right. Or or at least even if they didn't care about you as a person, they at least did these things. Uh, and, and to say nothing of the fact that you could be literally killed by like brainless, not even organisms like viruses, uh, you know, if you want to make yourself out to be that kind of a big shot. But um, and not only that, but he doesn't even have to acknowledge that other people need to exist in order for him to have the kind of personal relationships that he sees as making the whole thing worthwhile because he could just reproduce himself for that right he can he can be self-generated but the whole uh, yeah. concept of industrial production and global trade just kind of loses itself out in the wayside which is kind of in contradiction to the primary ideology of the novel right how many times does lazarus use the phrase the law of supply and demand oh yeah in the book so Lazarus himself is a kind of 
archetypal reification of the bourgeois marketplace, right? Mm -hmm. You are just the ideal person bringing your wares into the market and then developing your identity and your godlike status through your ability to do it better than anybody else. At the end of the day, it's almost like the market is more there to provide morals and to separate the good from the bad than it is to actually provision goods and services. Because if you actually thought about what was actually involved in provisioning goods and services, your mind, your your view of the world would look radically different and the morals you would draw from it would probably be quite different too. Yeah, his, he can only conceptualize things in, for how forward-looking he was as a futurist in a science fiction novel. He can still only think about things in terms of the uh, antiquated family farm as a kind of subsistence living, but he seems to always forget that he wouldn't have been able to enjoy the education that allowed him to develop right. the mathematics or physics or any of the literary history he was able to read. I mean, he's the kind of guy who likes to quote Shakespeare, but I'm not sure if he ever actually read him. Yeah, for instance, like, uh, to your own self be true. That was part of a list of, of like, foolish advice that was <laughs> given to Hamlet, I'm pretty sure. Like, yeah, I don't exactly. think he was supposed to take that all that seriously. Like, uh, was that Horatio? Yeah, the uh, which is character? There, I believe, yeah. yeah. Which character was giving that speech? Yeah, uh, just like, yeah, just him rattling off platitudes to Hamlet in, like, a display of how useless platitudes are when you're in a situation like Hamlet is. Uh, another uh, funny so one is that he const Lazarus constantly uh, ascribes sexual taboos and mores especially around incense to the old testament he's saying like oh i still he says i don't know if i want to have sex with my daughter but that's probably because i'm still the only one left here who had an education from the old testament never mind the fact that the old testament abounds with cases of incest right. yeah yeah i feel like it would be more like the new testament and or like incest taboos are pretty uh, you don't want to say anything's necessarily universal incest taboo is pretty common uh, I mean, among other things, if you're concerned with, you know, uh, diseases uh, or, or deforming. Um, yeah, his only, well, his rationale for why incest taboos were necessary was simply because of the need to limit genetic defects in procreation. Yeah. But Heinlein's sort of a thought experiment case is, what if we had the technology to make sure that those that. genetic defects wouldn't happen? Then there's no reason you can't sleep with your mom or your daughter. Because then that wouldn't affect your possible progeny, but completely ignoring how that would psychologically mess with you if uh, your father decided to have sex with you or you decided to act on certain yeah. impulses, how that might affect your relationship or how that might affect your relationship with other people. None of that comes across to Heinlein. It's only in a very libertarian way. You just bracket it down to terms of the argument you know you can win while exercising right. the rest of the world and if, and if everybody if everybody agrees to the contract then power differentials don't matter right yeah uh, that's consent is yeah. on a on a flat or two-dimensional basis yeah yeah it, it, it it's strange um now it's worth noting here that the thing i think you're right about the, fa the the fantasy of the family farm the other part of that is that traditional and what kind of makes most actual 
family farmers or peasant cultures or most agricultural culture for most of human history, pretty different from what Heinlein has in mind here, is that the idea is you're supposed to pass the farm on to your progeny, right? You're supposed to have kids who are related to you, but not exactly the same as you, to carry on on the farm uh, and to, to build... Uh, to uh, depending on what what uh, place and time you're talking about, sometimes it's to build you know a better farm and and rise up the social ranks. Sometimes it, it's just to keep existing because that's kind of the, the the point of it all. God wants you to, or you you want to, or or whatever else. Now, not to like individually psychoanalyze Heinlein too much, even though he just invites it uh, just just everywhere. Uh, you can't help it. Yeah, I he and Ginny did not have kids. I don't think he had any kids at all. So I kind of think that has something to do with some of this. A, having children will humble you most mm -hmm. of the time, especially if you're in charge of raising them yourself, uh, or at least helping, which I think, you know, Highline made decent money. I don't think that uh, they made, like, foist your your children off on the, the maid's money. Uh and they, they humble you, they give you a different idea of your continuity into the future. And it is often a comfort to people who are worried about natural death. Like, okay, I might die, but my descendants will live on. My memory will live on with them. Uh, you don't have to literally be alive and reproduce yourself like an amoeba that you get to have sex with uh, in order to have a sense of legacy. That's actually really interesting. So I wasn't aware of that. And now it actually makes a lot of sense why he was so obsessed with building a family in this book. One, the, a family that he could fuck. I don't know if he would feel similarly sexually attracted to children if he actually had them. If Lazarus Long, and I think it's not a total stretch to say is a kind of fantastical self-projection of Heinlein himself, to be uh, the most virile man in human history kind of speaks to what if he was sterile or just simply didn't have kids for whatever reason. Yeah, it's interesting. He had so much weird sexuality stuff. And a lot of those old guys, like they, they were known to get handsy with a staff at, you know, they, they, they were known to be sex harassers. Like Asimov, who did not present himself as hornily as Heinlein did by, by a country mile. No, uh, he, he had he, radio drama ladies in the Foundation series, but not nearly as... There was, like, basically yeah. no actual sex happening. Right. Whereas Heinlein, to the best of my knowledge, never accused of, like, acting anything other than a somewhat weird gentleman by any of the women in his life or by anyone around him. I don't think. Maybe he was able to get it out through his fiction just because right. of how horny it was. That was his relief. Yeah. Yeah, and he, I think he genuinely thought that what he was into was it was good, and he probably did believe. And he he never I, I don't think he does much with like non consensual sex in his everyone's everyone's into it. Yeah, everyone uh, wants to books. bang Lazarus Long. Yeah, everyone wants his baby. Yeah, so it it is, it, and this kind of goes to one of the reasons why. So so you asked about kind of my perspective. Uh, on on the American right and on my way of analyzing things, uh, which is a very flattering thing to be asked. But uh, I would say this goes to a few points. A, this kind of apotheosis point that we talked about, which I think helps go to the idea that one of the things that fiction and especially 
especially popular fiction, is valuable for historians of ideas to study uh, because it often expresses these things in ways that sort of uh, slip slip the surly bonds of earth, right? As the uh, the poem used to go, uh, or or of political responsibility. I mean, at this point, we're pretty used to the idea that like Ayn Rand uh, important to the uh, shape of the American right. Heinlein did not form the kind of cult or like institutional heft that uh, objectivism did under Rand and then her followers. But uh, I do think it's worth looking at Heinlein almost more than Rand for uh, the expression of a certain sensibility, right? And and that sensibility is, is brought to a logical extreme, probably past where many libertarians would go, uh, though not as many as one might like, in Time Enough for Love, right? The contradictions that you see in throughout Heinlein's work, his, you know, disdain for the government, but his fascination with the New Deal and with the military, which we didn't even really get into. Uh, I was going to talk more about Starship Troopers, but uh, I don't want to. It's it's. It, I think Starship Troopers is bad in a boring way, whereas yes, this is Time Enough for Love is bad in a sickening and interesting way. Absolutely, um, because the big thing with Starship Troopers is you barely get any battles. You just get boot camp, and it's treated completely unironically as like this cool good thing. Uh, so Verhoeven did a miracle by by turning it funny. Yeah, and funny and, and deeply entertaining. Yes, but the contradictions, uh, so the stuff about government, the stuff about race, right, that he writes off massive portions of humanity as, uh, as collectivists due to stere racial stereotyping, but his genuine disgust for personal racism, all of these things, people, people I think, often treat contradictions as ways you can kind of disqualify people from walking in a given intellectual path, right? We can't say that Heinlein was a straightforward libertarian, straightforward conservative because of all of these contradictions or ways that he contraindicates what we could see as kind of ideal type libertarianism or ideal type right-wing thought, which I think in many respects, the contradictions provide energy and they provide kind of biting points uh for thinking about these things if there was, weren't contradictions in people's thoughts if people didn't go off script sometimes then there'd barely be any need to think about this stuff at all yeah. i didn't want to right. talk to you about ayn rand that's completely uninteresting right. highland there's there's right. a lot of meat on the bone there and the contradictions yes. allow us you know we can be dialectical about this so we were just saying oh right wing bad left wing good i mean what mm -hmm we're not going to have a conversation. You know, there's nothing to right. discuss. There's nothing to dissect. Heinlein yeah. makes a really interesting figure just because not only through his kind of political development that we sketched out at the beginning of this conversation, but we can see that he is, there are no internally consistent ideologies. And Heinlein yeah. gives us a really good exposition of that. We can see him struggling through his own internal contradictions through the uh, evolution of his novels. And even if a lot of Time Enough for Love is can seem repellent, both in terms of its ideology and then some of the weird incestuous stuff, there's a lot to, to dig into there. So much of this stuff turns on things like mood, and affect and vision and dreams, right? It's not just policy proposals. So those are also important. Uh, and the way that certain dreams get yoked 
to certain political ideas and ideologies, I think is worth looking into for what I've come to call kind of the vernacular history of ideas, uh, right? The history of ideas produced by people who aren't understood as being in like the official idea producing milieu, right? Novelists are kind of an edge case, but I think especially pulp novelists at that mm -hmm. time uh, would would belong in the history of vernacular thought. Right, Philip uh, now, Dick started as a pulp novelist too, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, and it's interesting, Heinlein and Dick had an interesting relationship where uh, Philip K. Dick would, would make fun of Heinlein like openly in like magazines and stuff. He would write these little parody essays about him, uh, about him being like a paranoid, like cold warrior, which he was, but they were also friends. And uh, apparently Heinlein would, Heinlein did give him money sometimes to keep Dick afloat. Keep the amphetamines in his hands. Keep the amphetamines going and would often be the recipient of Dick's like late night, five hour long ranting, paranoid, speed right. fueled phone calls. By most accounts, Heinlein was like a fun guy to hang out with and like a pretty good friend, whatever else you want to say about the guy. I, you have to wonder how Sam Delaney or other black writers uh, might have thought at, at that time, uh, given his political commitments. Well, in one now, of Delaney's want... essays, he does talk about how like reading Starship Troopers for the first time was actually kind of a revelation for him because it was the first time where race was addressed, but not as a primary component right. in, uh, oh, in, a, in a science fiction novel he wrote because he writes about specifically when uh, Johnny Rico looks in the mirror for the first time and it addresses the fact that he's Filipino. And it doesn't happen yeah. until like halfway through the novel. Yeah, a novel that addresses race, it's not a race novel, as they would have said. So what do you think? Do you think we should talk about uh, Number of the Beast? Okay, sure. Uh, well, so it was um, his last book. I didn't read Number of the Beast. I read uh, To Sail Beyond the Sunset. Oh, sorry. That's what is, I meant. Uh, his last novel. And I only brought it up just because and we could use this kind of as a coda, maybe, because at the end of Time Enough for Love, Lazarus Long goes back in time, meets his mother. They have a liaison. He goes off to World War One, and then the novel ends. Uh, when he kind of ascends into this godlike status after he's rescued from death by his time traveling family. Uh, to Sail Beyond the Sunset was written, I think, or it was published at least just a couple of months before Heinlein died. And it's amazing because he's at the end of his life and it has the feel of like a, a sort of DMT life flashing before your eyes psychedelic episode, but it's written with total clarity. It's it's a very easy book to read. He has his classic Heinlein kind of comic timing down, which even if you don't appreciate the jokes, you have to respect the form. He was actually quite yeah, good at it. That is one um, thing he was. He, that was one technical aspect of writing he really was pretty good with. But it's from the point of view of Lazarus Long's mother, and it's essentially an auto, really autobiographical about Heinlein growing up in Kansas. It's an old man looking back at where he came from, and what began as a kind of uh, longing for a frontier or for a mythic past that's gone, which is what reactionaries tend to do, right? We romanticize a past that never existed that we long to go back to. That is a classic element of the reactionary right. And it has its, uh, its apotheosis in To Sail Beyond the Sunset. Maureen Johnson, who's Lazarus Long's mother, 
she grows up in the early 20th century in Kansas, and she becomes this very like intellectually uh, promiscuous and sexually free young woman. And throughout the course of her life, she becomes a very accomplished businesswoman and has a number of sexual liaisons. A lot of it gets even weirder at times and time enough for love, like some very cancelable stuff. Like uh, she insists on her husband having sex with their daughters as a way of oh. making their family come closer together. A lot of weird and stuff like that. Those aren't clone daughters. No, no, those are, yeah, actual. Yeah. Came okay. out of you daughters. Yikes. Damn. All right. But it also, it kind of serves as a mirror to Time Enough for Love because it narrates when Lazarus comes back in time and meets Maureen, but from Maureen's perspective. Uh, but then what the novel ends up becoming through the bulk of it is a kind of just a list of resentments throughout the decades of Heinlein's life from the 50s to the 60s through the 70s. And it kind of reevaluates even ways that Heinlein thought during his own lifetime during the 50s. You can see he's looking back at his own life through a, a much more right-wing set of glasses. Yeah, that's that's interesting uh, and kind of too bad. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, Heinlein, really rich vein. You know, like you said, Ayn Rand would have been kind of boring. And one of the ways that, one of the ways you can make Rand interesting is through the few contradictions that she didn't know she was doing, like that she formed a cult around individualism uh or or you know that she fit in uh you know they've made a lot out of how she fit in with these conservatives uh who were heavily dedicated to norms including christianity which she despised but Heinlein, i think much richer in terms of his actual writing what's actually in there uh in terms of its contradictions and it's just all this stuff we could potentially talk about for hours and hours but I, i'm really pleased that you suggested this uh, even if Time Enough for Love was a bonkers and in certain respects, deeply unpleasant book to read. Yeah, um, it's funny uh, when we decided to do this and I started, I, I, I picked up my copy and I started rereading it again. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I did this to Peter. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm so sorry. I had sorry. a few friends <laughs> saying to me like, damn, you're doing that? That's rough. Uh, you know, other other sci-fi enthusiasts I'm friends with. But, you know, I'm glad I did. It was It was certainly an interesting experience far from the worst novel i've read though it is pretty bad yeah uh but uh yeah thanks for doing this and do you have anything you want to plug like any projects or well just finished a book of poems with my friend vlad he runs a printing press here in the hudson valley called 1080 press uh they actually just put out a really good book of poems called black bedouin uh which you can see if you go to their instagram page or website uh we're going we're gonna to edit these poems and put out a book maybe in the next couple months. And then they do a newsletter every month. And I'm going to be doing a newsletter for them in, that will be out in February, basically addressing uh, Ezra Pound's cantos, specifically the Pisan cantos, drawing isomorphisms and parallels to that, to the actual post-war landscape and its epistemic breakdown uh, in Italy. So like intelligence operations in Italy and then just the general sort of malaise of distrust and then drawing it back. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we'll, we'll link to some of that. Uh, I guess I should say like the normal podcast stuff, how you should like, uh, review, comment, subscribe. Uh, I don't really have a prize for subscribe for people who pay money to subscribe. You can pay me $5 a month if you want, and you will get access to the discord that way. And the discord's a lot of fun. Actually, we have a pretty good discord community. 
Uh, so uh, yeah, if you pay me, just email me and I can send you an invite. Uh, but awesome. yeah, I guess the only the only lessons here, are, you know, the, the usual moral, you know, keep reading, read a lot of different stuff, have your own position, but read stuff uh, otherwise. And yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on, Quentin. Yeah, Highland is a slog, but it's you know we're glad he exists. Is important yeah. is important to the discourse. If, yeah, if the world is going to be what it is, then you might as well have a Heinlein in it. It's way less boring than uh, Ayn Rand. That's is. right. Yeah, that's right. All right, bye, folks. <laughs> <laughs>